0: we need to take responsibility. You can't palm this off to anyone else. You have to do the work and you can't do the work until you do the work on yourself. And so I have been intentional about who I want to be. And so I've had to change my personality and you just do every next level of your life demands a different version. And every year, and it's not being fake. It's actually taking the time to think about who you want to become.
1: Raise 1000 Voices is the podcast on a mission to raise the voices of the clever, creative and courageous women across the world. I am your host, Jacqueline Nagel, and I invite you to join me in conversations with women who will inspire and empower you as we explore just how to lift our levels of self-trust to reclaim the narrative and to use our voice to go after exactly what we want, doing it with strength, power and grace. For so many reasons, I am so glad to bring you this next conversation in the Raise 1000 Voices podcast series. This conversation is with Stacey Curry. Stacey is a respected businesswoman raised in housing commission accommodation with an absent mum. She experienced childhood sexual assault and by 14 was living in a shed. At 15, she was pregnant. At 19, she had two children and was homeless and called on to make big changes when all she knew was battling and welfare, figuring out goals and making a new life seemed impossible. Yet this is something that she did, which is why Stacey is now committed to sharing insights to empowering audiences to embrace change, unlock courage, and pursue the impossible. Stacey has appeared on TV shows, including The Today Show, The 7.30 Report, and 60 Minutes, to share her Against the Odds life story. She's been featured in many newspapers and magazines, including BRW, The Age, and The Herald Sun. Today, Stacey is a keynote speaker, successful businesswoman, author, ambassador, mother of five, and inspiration to thousands of people who have taken on her life lessons. This is a no-holds-barred conversation that weaves its way through a very big and unique story immersed in the shame that comes with growing up in dysfunction. She lands with a powerful call for all of us to take full responsibility for who we are and how we impact our next generation, our children. I also know you will be left in no doubt as to why sharing our stories matters once you hear the key role this played in Stacey's own life. Welcome to the next conversation. So right now, I would love to welcome Stacey Curry to the next episode of Raise 1000 Voices, the podcast. Welcome, Stacey.
0: Hello, and thank you so much for having me.
1: It's my absolute pleasure. Now, for those of us in the audience listening from around the world, where exactly are you at the moment?
0: Well, I live on the beautiful, amazing Mornington Peninsula, but you wouldn't believe it. Like we're in the 12th day of summer and it's hailing and it's raining and it's bloody freezing. So, Uh,
1: See, I'm heading south for those not from Australia. I'm heading south at the end of this week for family celebrations in the Blue Mountains and apparently it's going to be four degrees. And I'm like, this is not an Australian Christmas.
0: No, I think we might just get a white Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) That would at least make it worthwhile. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, I live near the beach and we can't even use it. Anyway.
1: Yeah, I'm totally with you right now. But anyway, back to our audiences and actually getting on with the podcast. Stacey, actually in full disclosure to our audience, I want to let people know that I've actually known you since booking you to speak at one of my own events almost 10 years ago for a women's conference that I was running. And like most people I love, I simply didn't let you out of my world since it's kind of like you come into my world. I love you, and becomes like the Hotel California. There is no escape, right? Yeah. So we've been bumping in and out, and in some of our recent conversations, you've been incredibly vocal about the fact that sometimes being new plus a bit, which is what we hear a lot of, in, in you know across social media now, is you know just be yourself, right? And you've been really, really increasingly vocal that sometimes you have to become a completely new and better version of yourself it's not just about being a better version of who you are now I know a lot of your story but can you just walk me through who you were and how you lived for the first 20 years of your life
0: yeah no worries but first can I just say taking you taking me back to that time when you invited me to speak how cringe was it when I asked if I could bring my dad with me <laughs> and, I, and this is the funniest thing. Like, we've had so many conversations about this, and I just thought it was amazing and adorable. Because <laughs> yeah. he had a stroke, and I didn't want to let him out of my sight. So I'm like, well, if you want to hire me as a speaker, can my dad come with me? And you girls are like, uh, who would invite their dad? But you didn't know the background. Anyway, you just reminded me of that memory.
1: Yeah, yeah. I do remember we've <laughs> laughed about it before now. And trust me, I'm going to say the same thing I've always said. We were kind of like, well, that's unusual, that's different. But it was more like how adorable. It wasn't like how weird. It was like how adorable. But, yeah, anyway, so your first 20 years, because your dad features a lot in your first 20 years of your life. Well, that's what it
0: reminded me of because, yeah. yeah. So I was removed from my mother's care as a baby and I was given to my dad. Now, my dad was in the army at the time and he got a phone call and said you need to come back and take care of these two kids. And my dad was a young guy. And he had no idea about raising kids and he was lumbered with these this one-year-old and a baby. And so I grew up with dad in, you know, now in New South Wales in one of the most underprivileged housing commission streets. And my dad remarried. And so between them both, they had seven kids. Dad wasn't educated. He, you know, he was on the dollar lot. We were very poor growing up. And my dad just had no rules or boundaries. Like I could do what I wanted when I wanted with who I wanted. I actually, you know, it was so dysfunctional, but I do remember having more fun memories with my dad than bad ones. And I had a lot of bad ones, but dad was like a kid. Like he was seriously like me living with a kid as a dad. He just did everything the wrong way. And so, you know, having no rules or boundaries, I guess I went off the rails because honestly dad never judged me or criticised me for any of the choices that I made. I was free to roam and just do what I wanted and, you know, I ended up living in the shed at 14 out the back of Dad's Housing Commission house and met my boyfriend and then I fell pregnant at the age of 15 and I had no idea how to even get pregnant because I didn't grow up with a mum. Yeah. I didn't. You know, I was the naughtiest girl in school. I was really cheeky. I wasn't a naughty, naughty girl where I was a nasty naughty. I was just a naughty, reckless, cheeky girl. And so I was kicked out of class so often that the school principal gave me a chair, and he said, "Stacy, I don't want <laughs> you to get piles from sitting on the cold bloody floors." So I had a, you know, personal chair. And so every time we had sex education or something, I'd, you know, blow up the condoms and run around like a willie. I was just, and then I'd get kicked out. So I had no idea, yeah. how you know that that's what happens. And
1: literally running wild and free.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I was I just, yeah, and then I find myself that I'm pregnant. I just have this baby. I walk to school with him, like in a could
1: I just, can I actually jump in? Can I wind you back? Because I know the story about when you were pregnant and how that sort of came out. It was your dad with a hernia, wasn't it? Something. Yeah. Could you just like, because I think for everyone to understand that you truly didn't understand that you were pregnant, I think it's a gorgeous story.
0: Yeah, so. I, um, Dad was standing in the kitchen just wearing his jocks and I walked from the shed down to the house and Dad was showing me the hernia on his belly button and I said, oh, shit, Dad, I got one of those too. And he said, well, you better go and get it checked out, love. And so I took myself off to the doctors to ask them to help me with my hernia and my hernia turned out to be a baby. I was pregnant. And so I ran home and I threw the test at Dad and Dad went out and bought a cask of wine to celebrate my pregnancy. Like, wow it was just you know that's just the way it was and even when I was giving birth you know I remember dad had borrowed his brother's car because we didn't have a car we were so poor and I went into labor had no idea I was even in labor and we get to the hospital first the pet there's no petrol in the car dad's got no (laughs) money for fuel so we have to stop at the servo to get fuel I get into the labor ward I'm on my own lying there and my boyfriend's with my brother somewhere and I've got my tracksuit pants, my jumper, my blanket pulled up to here and I'm just on my back and I wouldn't move and my back pain starts really hurting and so I'm screaming and crying for my dad and I'm like, I want my dad and he's out in the corridor and the lady says to me, oh, Stacey, I think it's time, the baby's coming, you need to take your pants off. And I'm like, I'm not taking my pants off because I wouldn't let anyone touch me, like no one other than my boyfriend, even the doctor to touch my tummy, I wouldn't let them touch it or look at it. and. She goes, no, you need to take your pants off. And I said, I'm not telling She goes, well, we need to get the baby out. And I'm like, well, where's this baby coming from? Like I genuinely had no idea. Because we didn't have Google or any apps or anything back then, nothing. Yeah. And I really was uneducated about all this. But I still, you know, through my pregnancy, I still went to school every day. I walked to school down the big long road that dad still lives on. I went, you know, caught the train from the train station to school. And then in the school holidays he was born in De- December and then I went back to school with him and I walked to school every day in the pram, down the street, caught the train, took him to school with me. And so, yeah, that's a bit of, of that. And then when I was 18 I fell pregnant with my daughter and I only found out when I was 18 months, uh, eighteen weeks pregnant. 18 months. God Thank no goodness man. it's
1: not 18 months. We'll oh. all be
0: out. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I found out when I was 18 weeks pregnant with her again I know that people will think, oh yeah, right. I just had no idea. I didn't even know about, you know, it took me until I met Dave, my husband, I've been with him for 18 years. My last two pregnancies went in my thirties to find out what periods were. I had no idea. And I'm like, Hey, I understand we bleed, right? But what does it mean? Why? And he had to tell me what it meant. Wow. So I yeah, honestly have had no idea about all my pregnancies. I just got through them. I didn't Check anything, didn't have checkups, nothing. So I find out I'm 18 weeks pregnant with my daughter. And at this stage, I was living on my own. So I moved out at 17 into my own unit with my boyfriend. And he was a nice kid. He was really nice. You know, we only split up because we were just too young and he wanted to have his independence and, you know, but there was no domestic violence or anything in that relationship. Yeah. And Josh and Talia were quite settled kids. And I was quite, living in that unit, I remember Talia being so settled. She was such a settled baby. Josh was a little unsettled just because I lived at home with, like, people coming and going and it was only a three-bedroom and there was, like, my five brothers and sisters plus our boyfriends and girlfriends plus people partying. Like, it was a revolving door of people. So Josh was a little unsettled but not You know, and so when I moved out on my own and it was just me, my boyfriend, Josh and Talia, Talia was such a settled baby. And then from there, so me and my boyfriend split up. He went to live back with his mum and dad. And then the lady that lived in uh, that owned my unit, she wanted to move back in. And so she gave me two weeks to vacate. And I couldn't go back to dad's house because I couldn't live in the shed with my brother took the shed. There was no room in the house. Yeah. And so I had to live on the floor of my friend's house. And so I had no mattress, just a blanket and pillow. It was when Melbourne and uh, Melbourne lost all the heating and hot water for two weeks. It was bloody freezing. But you know what? I'd lived rough all my life, so it honestly didn't bother me. Like if that happened to me to this day, I'd probably freak out. But it it didn't... At that point. Yeah, it didn't stress me out to the point where it would today. Yeah. And so I just slept on the floor... And then my life turned into a disaster from there. I, I was such a, I was a really good mum. I really was, I did the best that I could. I wasn't an alcoholic. I wasn't on drugs. I'd never smoked cigarettes because I could do all that. Yeah. If I wanted to do that, my dad didn't care and so I didn't do it. Yeah. And so I was a really good mum. And then I ended up going to a nightclub because I started to drink when I was homeless because... My friends were going out to nightclubs and I I think I was numbing my mind with my situation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I
0: started to drink a bit more than what I'd ever on a Thursday, Friday night and go out to a nightclub and Dad would look after the kids. And I met a guy at a nightclub and it ended up in a really volatile, I'd never experienced such abuse in my life. Yeah. And I lost a lot of myself in that relationship. And yeah. Yeah, so then we had our baby together and this time it was planned. Yeah, so
1: that's your third child?
0: Yeah, so it was the first baby that I'd ever planned because by now I'd learnt how it happened. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought he might be nice if we have a baby together, like it might, you know, be good. And so, yeah, we had a baby and it was just the worst thing. It just made it worse, ten times worse. Yeah.
1: So that was your first 20 years. And I love the distinction between completely like, yes, running free and wild and completely without boundaries with your dad, but also loved and cherished, and knowing that you always had backup. And then this flick that happened when you met this guy at a nightclub Mm -hmm. and ended up in that relationship. So that's your first 20 years. You've now got three children. Can you take us to the point where everything changed for you when you were, I think you were 21?
0: Yeah, so then when I was 21, so I've got the three kids at 21 and something had happened, which I can't go into because this person was never found guilty, even though the federal police and all that knew exactly what had happened. So there's no charges ever been laid. But things happened in that relationship where I had, there was three people in my life that were trying to get this baby, our baby, and I ended up at the Royal Children's Hospital with the DHS, the federal police and a few staff from the hospital, grilling me about the relationship I was in and why I was putting my kids through it all. And that's when they gave me two choices and that was change my life or lose my stay in the relationship and lose my three kids to foster care. And so that was the kick up the ass that I needed because I actually didn't even know that I was living in an abusive relationship. I just thought that was normal. Yeah, I really did. I thought the life I was living was perfect because we really did have some good times, even though it was so dysfunctional. Yeah. But they were dysfunctional good times. Yeah. And so I just just didn't know what was normal or what was. I thought that just being treated like a worthless piece of shit was life, you know. I'd never been treated with respect. And as much as I love my dad, he didn't show love because he didn't know how to love himself so I don't ever remember being hugged and kissed by my dad and you know I look at my husband now with our daughter Renee and I just think god he's just so beautiful you know they snug together and it's just beautiful to watch and I've never had that and so I guess being treated like with abuse to me was just Mm -hmm. love you know and so yeah I had to change my life and I made the decision. So walk
1: us through that because it sounds like, you know, we get the homogenised Instagram reel these days of the, you know, the stories of recovery and the stories of making a difference and it's all very homogenised. Can you walk us through what the reality of that was for you?
0: Well, it was scary because, like, I, you know, I do remember when I was, like, 19 and I was, I knew, sometimes I knew I was being a bit dysfunctional, but, but I wasn't sure because I'd honestly all of, like, just who I grew up with were, not normal looking back. Well, what's normal? But it was very (laughs) dysfunctional. Yeah, it was (laughs) normal. Yeah. (laughs) And I grew up with, you know, people in my family and life, just derogatory comments towards women and stuff, being funny. It was never about abuse or anything. It was just funny, you know, typical Bogan, Aussie stuff.
1: Aussie humour, yeah.
0: right. And so I grew up like that. And so I did it to men, you know, guys, hot guys, young guys. You know, I'd yell out things out the window to them. And I remember being about, would have been about 19 and I had my son in the car and I had a friend and we were, you know, weird together. And I wound down my window because there was this really hot-looking guy fixing the the traffic lights. And I was in my Holden VB Commodore, you know, beaten up. And I wind down the window and I whistle at him and yell out, ooh, sexy, or something like that. And he just looked at me so disrespectfully. Yeah. And I thought, oh, how embarrassing. You know, because normally a lot of the guys will go, "Woo, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah." And I remember driving, and I said to my friend this day, "I said I don't want to be rough anymore. Like, I don't want to swear anymore, and I don't want to be this girl." I, I and, but I just went straight back to who I was because I just didn't yeah. know how to change. Yeah. But when it was court ordered to change or lose my kids, that that was, you know, like I said, I my kids were my world, like. As dysfunctional as my story sounds, I freaking adored my kids. Like Josh and Talia, they had all the you know Thomas the Tank Engine. They had bloody their rooms decked out with bananas in pajamas. They had all the. Talia loved high five. She was dressed head to toe. She was called um Emelda in kindergarten. (laughs) Yeah, she had all the every day. She had a different pair of shoes. You know, she was. They were really well looked after, and so when they gave me those two choices at the hospital. My kids, the two little ones, Josh and Tali, were sitting on the floor playing with toys and the four-month-old baby was in another room. When they said that to me, like, honestly, I got onto my knees with my kids and I I was praying and I went, not praying, but I was, like, bending down, please, please don't take my kids off me, please. like, And I was screaming, like, bawling. I just couldn't believe that I was in this situation. And my dad was with me and he was sitting beside me and... I looked over at dad and I'm like, you know, because dad's always been my rescuer. Yeah. And I knew he couldn't help me in this situation. There was nothing, this was out of mine and dad's hands. Yeah. And I remember sitting in the waiting room and I'm crying to dad, saying, Dad, what if they take these kids off me? What if I can't lose these kids? And then they called me back in, and, and that's when they gave me the second choice that I can keep my kids, but Stacey, you've got to change your life. And it was scary. I remember driving home. I remember distinctively thinking, what's this other life that I have to live? What?
1: Yeah, you had no idea.
0: No idea because I honestly thought that I was living the dream life with my boyfriend. Like I'd found a unit. I wasn't homeless anymore. Yeah. I felt lucky that I had a unit, you know, and so that was really scary. Yeah. To think I didn't know what to do. Yeah. But it wasn't until I had because I was court ordered to go to domestic violence counselling. Mm-hmm. And I remember turning up to this old dingy community center, and I was sitting out there in my tiny little denim shorts and my red singlet top. And I was sitting there thinking, I don't belong here. Like, why am I coming here? I don't want to be here. Yeah. And she, you know, she comes and gets me, and I walk into a room and She's, she looks rough as guts, this lady, and she had no shoes or socks on and she's rolling herself a cigarette out of a tobacco bag and, honestly, I felt so comfortable in that environment. <laughs> I really did. She was exactly who you needed. I needed yeah. that, you know. I didn't want someone dressed in a suit and all that. She just, and all the furniture was off the hard rubbish. I know it was. <laughs> so I really felt so comfortable in that room. And so she started to explain the cycle of domestic violence to me. And I'm like, she actually voiced how I lived. And I was like, yeah, so maybe I really am in domestic violence. And so I just said to her, what do I do? How do I change my life? Like, I have to change my life if I want to keep my kids. And I said, what do I do? And that's when she said, keep coming here. So every Tuesday and Saturday, I went there religiously for two years. I did not miss a session. I loved it. I was addicted to it.
1: Yeah
0: and she got me to read books and I remember I was doing all the court case and I was 21 I had no support my dad was useless with this kind of stuff he Yeah you know I was like the parent in our relationship if the you know if I got in trouble at school or my brothers or sisters I would ring the school and tell them to not ring my dad because my dad's said telling me he's going to have a heart attack and die and so I had to take charge and ring the school and go up to the principal's office and say look if there's any issues can you please ring me because you get stressing my dad out. And so anything like what I was going through with the courts and the lawyers and barristers and solicitors, there's no way dad would have dealt with that, right? Yeah. So I I was pretty much on my own and I was up against some people that had money, you know, and I'm just this 21-year-old that's dressed in bloody boys' clothing and from op shops because I can't afford clothing I turn up to my solicitor's office and she looks me up and down and she's all dressed to the nines in her bloody stilettos and beautiful outfits and my six-foot-tall barrister comes in and he's hot as and dressed in his suit. And she's like, Stacey, you need to actually, if you want to be taken seriously, you need to go and buy some different clothing. And I'm like, well, what? How? And she said, I don't care, but you need to do something. And so Maya was right across the road. And so I went and bought a $140 pinstripe black and white business suit. And I was contacting all the doctors and the neighbours and the health nurses and all these people who had been in my life to get letters. And so they were writing me all these amazing letters about me and I'd never read anything amazing about myself before. And so when I turned up to my counsellor that week, I remember sitting there because every week you have to talk about how your day's been. And it was a group of us. Yeah. And you have to tell them how your week's been. And I'm like, oh, ladies, you won't believe it. You know, I've been, to, I went and bought a pinstripe business suit and it looks amazing. I've rang the doctors and the solicitors and the barristers got all these amazing things. And one of the ladies there, she was like, like an OnlyFans, you know, but OnlyFans wasn't there back then. But that's yeah. what she did. She was like a sex worker. And she's like, she sat back and she goes, Stacey, Look at you go. Since you've been here, you've gone from being a victim to a survivor. And then so we all start singing, you know, I'm a survivor, you know, it was just awesome. <laughs> and so and then she says to me, Stacey, you remind me of Erin Brockovich. She said, you're just amazing, you know. And so that day I went back to or the next day or whatever, I went to the library because I used to hire my books that my counsellor said to hire the books from. And so I used their computer and I Googled Erin Brockovich and I'm like, oh, she's a single mom and she's a real savvy business, you know, court lady and all this. And it really inspired me. And I thought I can do this. You know, I can face this, this situation that I'm in. And I remember the next court case, I went into the family courts in the city. I'm on my own again. And I turn up with my folder and I hand it to the barrister. And I said, listen, I need all of this read by the judge, It's not going to pass until all of this stuff's read by the judge. And I really stepped up and had to find my voice to to win my kids. Yeah. And I became really confident. Like in the beginning, I was such a, I'd lost a lot of my confidence being in an abusive situation. And I just felt really proud of who I was becoming. And it was one of my most amazing times of my life, to be honest. Like I was becoming (laughs) someone I'd never thought I was. I always thought I was just a shit kicker kind of thing. So there was a lot of shifts in that. So did you, so you also, you just, you just touched on the
1: fact that, you know, what got your attention with Erin Brockovich was she'd been a single mother. You took a lot of inspiration from that, obviously. Who else did you take inspiration from along this this turnaround point in your
0: journey? So then I started to feel amazing and I really wanted to chase my dream job that I'd never thought was possible. Yeah, I'd given up on it because I got not one knockback. back. So then I started to pursue my dream of being a funeral director and I won, I knocked on... Hang on a minute.
1: A dream to be a funeral director. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like that's not, I don't think most kids wake up in the morning and go, when I grow up, I want to be a funeral director.
0: No, so when I was eight, me and Dad were walking to the milk bar to buy an ice cream and then on the way we saw a man being hit and killed by a car and I was fascinated. Like I'm standing there and I'm seeing him and I'm thinking, man, he was just alive ten minutes ago and now he's dead. Like it really spun me out as a kid and the police and that put the white sheet over and we have to go away and I just was the whole time pounding dad with questions dad what's going to happen to the man who's going to look after him and he's like oh for god's sake Stacy and so that night he took me to a funeral home he showed me he said this is where the man is going to go and they're going to look after him here and they're going to dress him up and they're going to make him look nice and then people come to a funeral and he explained everything and I said I want to make the man look good and so that's I had a dream of doing that, you know, just to look after this man. And so I ended up because I got knocked back for being a funeral director for years, you know. It's not an easy, even though it sounds easy, it's actually not an easy industry to get into. Yeah. And so when I so I got a trainee as an accountant's assistant and I had my own desk with my own computer. And so on the times I was quiet, I would Google teenage mums that became successful. And up came Louise Hay. So she was a 16-year-old pregnant. She had a baby at 16 and she became become like a renowned author and yeah. inspiration to millions of people. Absolutely. And at the time, Oprah came up as well that she actually, her mum had her as a teenager and then she was 14 and pregnant at the time. And I'd never heard of Oprah back then. I didn't watch Oprah. We didn't watch TV or anything. And so I'd actually never heard about her, but I was reading her story and Louise Hay and Erin Brockovich, and they were talking about stuff that I had so much shame about. Like I would never have told the people that I was working with. My boss, where I won that traineeship, I didn't even tell him I had three kids because I was so ashamed of being so young. Yeah. And so when I was reading their stories, I started to feel proud of being a single mum, being sexually abused as a child, being homeless, living in an abusive situation. And I was like, it just started me to feel like I had people that have experienced what I have. Yeah. And it just inspired me to just be better and do better and I was becoming so freaking someone that I'd never thought I even was. And I remember going to this this school thing where to become a better female like learn how to dress better and talk better And just you know parenting courses I did so many parenting courses because I just wanted to be the best version of myself that I could be
1: yeah yeah was- what I love about that Stace is you know you actually found the stories of those people you found the stories from Oprah you found the stories from Louise Hay you found the stories from Erin Brockovich it was those stories and them sharing their experiences that made you realize that you there could be not just this better life that was good enough to get your kids back, but you could actually become someone who made a difference, right? And as was sharing of stories is what I loved. Now, when it comes to storytelling, because we will you know move forward with the audience to what you do now, but when it comes to storytelling, you do share stories from a stage now and you do share a very big story about your life. Have you always loved stories? Like, you know, you said when the, the counselor, domestic violence counsellor told you to go and read a book, it was like, oh, I don't read books, and you went and found how to get them from the library. And what you fell in love with with these women was their stories. Have you always loved stories and just didn't realise it, or did you discover them and it opened a whole new world for you? Like, where was your love for story? Was it before you actually discovered these women sharing their stories?
0: Well, I didn't read books. I've never been written, read books as a child, and I didn't do homework or anything. But I do remember, love writing stories. So at school, wow. the only two things I was good at was writing stories. One of them ended up at bloody Canberra somewhere because it was so good. Don't even remember what it was on. But all I remember was <laughs> saying it's in Canberra. But back then I didn't care. Looking back now, it was quite a big deal. And I was really good at sport. Like I was the fastest girl in the school, probably because of all yeah. the adrenaline and stress and shit in my life. and drama. Yeah. The three I loved. it, And so I just loved writing. And then I become obsessed with other people's stories as I started to learn about the internet. Yeah. And reading books. And I became obsessed. Like even to this day, I love, I don't watch movies, but I will, I will sit and watch a whole real life movie. Yeah. From start to finish. I cannot get into other movies. Yeah. Documentaries on people's lives. I, I am obsessed with them. I love stories. And that's why I think one day you ask me why I keep doing what I do. It's because I love being the person that I needed back when I needed it, because I know how much these women's stories shifted and shaped who I've become now. Yeah. I love being that person for others.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. We've just touched on like a future state, the future, Stacey, which is you now speak and you now inspire others, you now share story. You've written a couple of books. You have had media. How did you make the shift though? Like you know, you were finding your way, you were becoming a better mother. You're obsessed with story, obsessed with parenting courses. You mentioned also your husband. Like what? How did that all come together? Like you, you were had a guy in your life. Fast forward, you've got like this business, this major business. Like where was the shift of gears with that? Because that's another big leap. Like, it's well and good to come out of dysfunction. It's well and good to be functional. It's well and good to win your kids back. But then you shift gears to become this multi million dollar award nominated businesswoman who has a media career and publishes a book. How did you actually make that shift of gears? And who was around you to do that?
0: Well, one of the things I read in the book is you become the top five people you associate with. Yeah. Now, I got rid of every friend I had out of my life. And so they say go and find positive friends but positive successful people wouldn't have wanted to hang out with me at that time right and i know yeah and so i had to have a, a year of myself just me on my own because i didn't trust myself to not go well i i did make choices to go back to my old life for a little bit. Yeah. It would have been about mm-hmm. a couple of parties and then I went, "Oh, you know, I I can't go back to these old choices." So I picked myself back up, made the decision I'm not having any friends in my life. I didn't trust myself. And so I did 2 years of counseling on myself. Then I got my job and I did that traineeship. It was meant to be 4 years, but it was I got 3 years and got high distinctions and I was just kicking ass in that and my boss was just so impressed and like it just highlighted how intelligent and smart I was, but I didn't even know it. Yeah. I didn't know that I was that I could do all these things that he was giving me. And anyway, I was passing all of that. And so I then attracted my husband, Dave, who, where he worked there. And he was so different to who I'd ever been with. He didn't swear. He wasn't rough. He dressed in nice, like, pants with nice shirt. And he wore a tie and he was nicely spoken. And he's the total <laughs> opposite. Like, I wasn't even attracted to him when he kept flirting with me. I didn't even know. I used to think he's annoying me because he wants to sit in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm trying <laughs> to read my newspaper every bloody lunchtime. And he comes in and sits with me and wants to talk. And I'm thinking, fuck, mate, I just want to watch read my bloody newspaper. And then he asked me out for lunch. And I'm like, oh, yeah, all right. And, you know, he was, he was boring as batshit because <laughs> of what you've been used to. Yeah. Dave was just flatline, like, just normal. You know, yeah. and so every time I saw him, he was just the same. There was no ups and downs. And it, I was like, man, this guy's weird. Like, he doesn't yell, he doesn't get angry. He does. It actually freaked me out to be. I, I actually called it off after about a month or, or two months or something. I said, I can't. I don't really want to be with you. I said, You just make me feel uncomfortable. Like, there's something about you. I just. Oh, wow. I honestly thought he was a secret psychopath or something because <laughs> he was so calm. He really freaked me out. I honestly thought he was Because he was the very
1: opposite of your experience. Yeah,
0: he was just so calm all the time. And I'm thinking he's hiding something. I know there's something there that's going to come out. 18 years later, he's still the exact same. (laughs) I remember he came and bought me and my kids a great big platter of sushi one day. And he knew that one of my other kids didn't like sushi. So he got that one Macca's and I cracked it with him. I was like, don't you dare. I told my kids, don't eat it. And I took him aside and I said, "Don't, don't feel sorry for me. You don't need to feel so because no guy had ever done anything nice like this." Yeah. And I said to him, "Don't feel sorry for me and my kids. We do, I don't need your money, and I don't need you to your, your your charity." Like I was embarrassed.
1: Yeah. You
0: know, but that's just he's a kind man, and <laughs> yeah. And, and I I know that that sounds like I'm an asshole girl, but I just wasn't used, to, and I just felt like there was a motive behind why he was doing that to me and my kids, and it scared me a bit. Yeah. So I put the brakes on him and said, no, I don't, you know, I can't deal with this. So, and then, so he raced, raced go-karts. He had a hobby. And after I won my dream job of knocking on that same funeral guy's door for seven years and getting knocked back every year, but every year I'd knock again, or every six months I'd knock on his door and I'd get better and better. The first time I knocked on his door, I was homeless with the two kids. I was dressed in bloody boys trackies and a jumper the last time seven years later I had I started going to hairdressers I had makeup on I had a beautiful dress I had my stiletto shoes I and I turned up and he's just sat back and he said Stacey I think you're ready oh I love that I was speaking better and so I was investing a lot of the change in my life mm-hmm Now, one of the things, because I'd done a lot of research on the developing brain of a child that's lived in domestic violence, and one of the things I learned was when you're living in domestic violence, your kids suffer. Yeah. But when you leave, the trauma is ongoing. Yeah. Now, what happened was I was so focused on changing my life to be a better mum for my kids, I kind of neglected to invest as much time as I could into them. Not that I neglected, I was still there, but I was working so much because that was the only thing that, put me on a positive path if I had sat home and hung out with dropkick friends that I was a dropkick with I would have just got nowhere yeah and it would have taken me down a path where I would have lost my kids and so putting my energy into a traineeship getting educated I had to put the kids in before school care after school care but I was still you know working with their sports like I'd take them to basketball cheerleading football all of that stuff but I didn't work on their inner self enough Mm -hmm. because I was still a bit dysregulated. And so I didn't know how to help them regulate. And so my son really struggled with his mental health at the age of nine and the school principal called me in and I had to sit in an office and and I'd made the decision then and there I had to resign from my job because I knew my son needed psychology and counselling. I didn't want to tell my boss, my life again I still had a lot of shame around that I didn't want to say oh yeah this is you know and so I had to go and tell him after seven years of knocking that I can't have this job he had no idea why still to this day he probably wonders where whatever happened to me and so I went home and I stood in the land room and I thought what am I going to do and I thought I've got two choices here I can go back to Centrelink and get put back on single parent pension, knowing that we would end up homeless again because the only reason I could afford this house was because I had the traineeship, the job. and. But then I thought, okay, if I build a business, I can build a business because my son can come with me. Yeah, I can be flexible. And so I asked Dave, who had a hobby of racing go-karts and he was a tight ass, so he used to print his own stickers, and I said, I, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> can I turn your hobby into a business? He was still working where we met, mm-hmm. where I was doing the traineeship as an account assistant. And I said, can I turn your hobby into a business? And he's like, uh, you don't know about business. Still, I still couldn't. He wasn't living with me or anything at the time. We were not. It was very new. I still didn't tell him how bad my situation was. I just said, "Yeah, I just have to resign from my job for now. He, he had no idea how bad it was. So I said, look, can I turn your hobby into a business? And, you know, I got in the car and I found a chair on the hard rubbish and I'm like, Josh, quick, grab that bloody chair. And I had a green camping table, a phone and a laptop. And, you know, I knew from years and years of knockbacks, constantly getting knockbacks, that I I knew it would take me, you know, about 100 phone calls to win one sale. And so I'd get on that phone every day and I'd do 20 at once and then I'd go to the toilet, have a toilet stop, ring again, another 20, go to the toilet, have a toilet stop, until I hit 100 a day and I got a a lady that called me in from a big company and she took me into her boardroom when I got there and she sat me down and she said, Stacey, we've got a conference in the next few months. We need pull-up banners, fabric displays, media walls, all of these posters and I'm like, yeah, 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 you know, I can do that. I got out into the car park and I rang Dave and I'm like, Dave, I've just won a $30,000 job with one of the biggest companies in Australia and he's like, Stacy, I told you not to go for the big customers. We've got no machine. <laughs> I'm like, oh god, you're negative. And I hung up and I found a printing supplier who could print the job on time within budget. The quality was great. And so I just repeated that same process over and over. Yeah. Within six months I'd managed to win huge jobs with BHP Billiton, Coles Meyer, Clive Peters. And then I rang Dave one day and I said, "Dave, you need to resign from your job and come and work for me in your business."
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. I love that. <laughs> yeah, so
0: that's how that's how all that worked. But then yeah, I put all the effort into building this bloody empire that I couldn't believe and then She'd
1: the and so you did So you did build a great empire. It was a multi-million dollar business. You're working with some of the biggest organizations in the world. You published your first book, which is mainly to get your story out there so people couldn't come back at you. You secured media, you are nominated for business awards, and that's how you came to everyone's attention. But then you chose to actually scale that business back. Can you talk us through what happened and why you made that decision?
0: Yeah. First, I want to say the book, the first book, I don't even want to say the name of it because it's such a shit. Yeah. The only reason I wrote that book. It got it out though. Yeah. It got it out of the way. <laughs> because As I was getting, like when I was homeless and all that, the people in my life judged me so bad. But when I was building a business, they were still judging me saying, you know, you wait, there was this one person in particular saying, you wait until your customers find out about you being sexually abused and living in a shed and 15 and pregnant, you know, you're going to lose your business and it freaked me out, right? It really. Yeah. And I remember crying that night thinking, "Now I'm going to have to quit the business." Yeah. Because if my clients cuz I honestly had so much shame around this issue. Like I reckon I wrote about shame before Brené Brownie in this book. Yeah. Because I lived with so much shame in my life that I nearly gave up that business because I was so scared of people finding out the truth of my life. And so I remember making a decision that night that I thought, you know what, I'm going to write my book into a story. I'm just going to write it out there so this person cannot blackmail me anymore. And I wrote everything about what I went through. And it was the most amazing thing that ended up happening. I had a a business person, you know, I used to go to a networking group and they invited me to come to this seminar thing. It was a three-day thing. And in that seminar, there was all these big, successful business people. And we had to play a game. The leader of the place, the facilitator, he said, all right, we're going to get all you people to do a game. And he said, when you know the answer, I want you to make an appointment with the assistant and then you've got to come to me. The game started and I shit you not, I knew the answer straight away and I'm thinking, why is no one else running up to the assistant? And I'm like looking around, I'm thinking, I know the answer. Like it wasn't wasn't an answer, it was what would you do? It wasn't like a question answer. And I was like, I know what I'd do straight away. And I went up to the assistant and I said, yeah, can I speak to the guy? And I went up to the guy and I said, oh, yeah, this is what I would do. And he goes, and the buzzers and bells and shit went flying and ding, 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 ding. (laughs) And I'm like, what's going on? And they take me to the winner's circle and I'm the only one out of that whole room that made it into the winner's circle and I'm not joking. And this guy comes up to me afterwards and he offered me a job in his company because he ran a huge company and everyone would probably know about it. And so. What happened from there, I was building this. So that night, that day, I became, you know, I had to stand up and talk in front of the crowd yeah. and tell my story at this event. And one of the ladies there ran a foundation, yeah, a teenage mums, homeless teenage mums. And she came up to me afterwards and said, can I talk to her? So I ended up being an ambassador for this foundation and they wanted me to do media interviews. And so that's how I ended up doing media interviews. But then all this stuff that I was putting into my life, I hadn't invested in the kids. And so my boys start turning into teenagers. Well, they just went down a path of destruction. Yeah. And I looked for help everywhere for these boys. I didn't know what to do. I searched. I googled. because when I become obsessed about something, I am obsessed and I will not Yeah. Stop researching until I find it. I could not find anywhere to help my sons deal with the trauma of the domestic violence to the point where I went on TV and did an interview about it, which I would never normally do. But I was so desperate for help. And even from that TV station, uh, 60 Minutes interview, I still couldn't find help. And so...
1: That's extraordinary, because we just assume it's there if you need it.
0: No, I could not find any help for my I don't know where it is. Like I said, I went on 16 minutes and I didn't have I still can't find anything out there. I became so desperate I put an advertisement in the local newspaper asking if there was a male out there, role model that could help me. Nothing. I just they were just going off the rails and I I ended up having to just take full responsibility as a parent and scale back the business, get rid of the employees, move into a smaller factory and really focus on my boys. Because, and I'm not joking when I say they probably could well and truly be dead or in jail had I have not made that decision. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that I learned with the research that I was doing at the Developing Brain of a Child in Domestic Violence is If they've got three things that, that, you know, love, connection and regulation, you know, because I grew up with a dad that was dysregulated. Yeah. He grew up with parents that were dysregulated. I then grow up dysregulated. I grow up with my my other kids end up dysregulated with no connections, no positive connections, no love. I mean, my kids had love and positive connections. I think I broke a cycle earlier, a cycle for generations but you know, and so I knew that what my kids needed was love, connection, and regulation. And so every single day, I would walk with my boys without fail, walk and talks on the beach. I had to sprinkle a bit of tough love in there and get a restraining order on one of my sons, yeah, who became quite violent. But I bought him a mobile phone, and he had access to me every single day, and we still did our walk and talks. But he just wasn't allowed to live in the house because I then because I've got five kids now, so I've got the two with the the husband, they're 14 and 13 now. And I knew that I wouldn't repeat what had happened with my younger three. And so by my son having anger issues in the house, I knew that that was going to create dysregulated kids in my other kids. And I said, no, I'm not having that. Like, you're not going to be violent in my home. And there was a fair few years of just so much just, Mm. I can't even begin to tell you how awful that period of my life was
1: without going into a lot of detail because that's their story to share not yours yes where are they now how are the boys now
0: oh amazing yeah like the the time i've invested has it's paid off yeah they've you know finished their apprenticeships they're doing really well like i can't even believe the particularly the 22 year old like the 28 year old he's always been a beautiful boy the 22 year old he's He's a he's a mini me to be honest. He's just a little, <laughs> it's like he's just you know. But the way he is speaking at the moment is unbelievable. Like the the shift in him, yeah. He is such an inspiration to me now.
1: Yeah, that's what I want to lead into. We had some conversations over the last couple of weeks, and one of the questions I asked you in a, a group conversation, one of the questions I asked was, if you did a TED talk, what would it be on? And this is actually where I want to land our conversation because it was so powerful for me. So what is it that you believe breaks the cycles and makes a difference for the children? You had a really powerful statement and insight when I, mean, I said, you know, what would your TED Talk be on? So, like, I'm actually going to ask the question again for everybody to hear. What would your TED talk be on? Take it away, Stace.
0: Oh, well, there was an awesome title, and I've forgotten that title now. It was like yeah, <laughs> something about take responsibility, like the parents. We need to take responsibility. You can't palm this off to anyone else. You have to t- do the work. Yeah, and you can't do the work until that you do the work on yourself, right? Yeah, and so my TED talk will be about, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't like to get on a big pedestal and and point fingers at people and say, you know, you need to do this. I don't, when I speak like this, I don't want people to think I'm like that because I'm not. But I really do believe that as parents, there's so many that need to take responsibility, Yeah. you know, and put that effort into the kids and help them, show them more love because the love and the connections actually develop their brain cells.
1: refires them. You know, I
0: can't go into it too scientifically because I can't explain it better than what the others do. But And regulation is a huge one. You know, the only reason that my sons went off the rails and chose those choices, and me as well, the choices I chose, was because I was dysregulated. I didn't know how to deal with my emotions. Yeah. And I had never, like I said, I've never drank alcohol. I'm not a big drinker. I didn't do drugs and I didn't smoke. So I didn't know where to put my emotions. I was never on medication or anything. And so I put it into making stupid choices where my boys managed it with other substances and things like that. And that's what a lot of people do. A lot of parents suppress it with alcohol or drugs or whatever, but they're not actually getting to the core of the issue by helping their kids regulate because they're so dysregulated. Yeah, And so... That
1: Because you just, you just can't take anyone where you haven't been yourself, can you? No. Like no. you could not have brought your boys back into the world of the living, so to speak, if you'd not actually done it for yourself.
0: No way. And that's what I'm saying through all of that trauma that I went through with the boys because it was worse than living in an abusive situation because these were my boys. Yeah. I had to do the healing work on myself, the inner child work. Yeah. I had to go to acupuncture. I had to go to breath work. I had to do meditations. I didn't believe in all that crap before that. (laughs) None of us
1: do before we go on the journey.
0: I thought it was all woo-woo, you know, stuff. But I had to go through that. And then because I'd been through it, I'm like, oh, my God, I know how to help my boys regulate. Yeah. I know how to get them to get out of the fight flight because every day. and, And what happened was I'd say to the boys, look, everything that you do, you're activating your sympathetic nervous system. And I'd explain what's happening. And I'd say what we need to do is activate our sympathetic nervous system, you know, rest and digest. And so I'd say these are all the things that you do to activate your, you know, that sympathetic nervous system. And all these choices made over here, you're activating that, the stress one, fight, flight. And so I was so open with them. And so I'd always say, now, boy, is this activating this one or is this choice, you know? And it was just, yeah, you know, they're not perfect. I mean, who? no. Who, None of us are. None of us are yeah. going to be. They're still
1: going to have their. Reach. None of us are going to be, and I hope. I really, actually, hope to God none of us ever are. Yeah, exactly. Because you know, <laughs> <laughs> because then we won't have anything to talk about. So, for those people listening along, one of the things that I love is you have actually created an incredibly powerful presentation speech, if you want, where you share stories, and and this is all about sharing story, and and I'm really grateful for what you share with us today because it's. It's it's kind of interesting, isn't it? When you do come from a dysregulated background, and I do as well, you kind of you start sharing your story, not actually understanding that your story probably shouldn't be shared the way that you know it, because to us it's just normal life, and it's a big learning curve to understand, and that's part of being dysregulated, because you don't understand that these things are not normal right and you don't understand that you're living in this It's like you said when you first met your husband it's like he's a psychopath yes and all he was was kind right so I love the way that you've brought this to life and the way that, and I'm really grateful for you sharing because I think part of what we need to do more is actually share the stories more but share the stories of what I call unhomogenized like so it's not glossy it's not the highlights real it's not the Instagram real And I'm really grateful for you being so open and vulnerable with us as well, because it's also not always easy to bring your children into the conversation. One of the things I'd love to, you talked before about, you know, you didn't read books, yet you love a story. And then you fell in love with the power of books through your domestic violence counseling and, and the court order stuff. And it's actually, I know that it's become a lifelong obsession for you. What are your go-to books? What are the ones that, you know, if you're if there's a younger mum or a younger adult coming to you and saying, "I really want to understand how to get out of here. I want to be like you when I grow up," so to speak. What are your go-to books? What do you tell them to start with?
0: Well, Dr. Joe Dispenza, Becoming Supernatural is one of my favorites but I think that might be a bit too much for someone that's just starting yeah the first book I started with was The Courage to Heal I don't even know who that was from but that's the one that my counsellor court ordered me to uh, read The Courage to Heal yeah it's a pink and purple cover but yeah Dr Joe Dispenza I love his book yeah
1: yeah he's kind of he kind of actually creates healing by stealth he's just incredibly powerful with how he positions his stuff so now, obviously, you were talking before about you were judged when you were homeless, you were judged when you were successful, you were judged and had lots of people's opinion. What's the worst piece of advice you've been given along this journey?
0: Yeah, probably the worst, worst piece of advice was become a thought leader.
1: <laughs> Tell me more. I shouldn't laugh so loud because we do create people who hold thought leader positions, but that's different to becoming a thought leader.
0: Yeah, so, the, so you know, because... I had no idea that there was a career of speaking. And like you said, you know, you hired me, go up there. But that was just fun. It was just I didn't set out to become a speaker. I didn't honestly know it didn't exist. It didn't not existed. But then I'd get up there and I'd just talk shit. I'd had Google images. I just can't even believe the presentations I used to do, to be honest. And it was all about me, me, me. There was no takeaways or anything because I didn't know. I just yeah. told them my story, you know. And then I went to... I needed to level up. I knew I needed to because I was a bit embarrassed about the keynote after that. And I went to someone and they wanted me to be a thought leader and I was like, no, I'm not like that. And then I just, I totally didn't listen to myself, which I don't do. I always listen to myself. And when I don't, it always turns to crap. And so it turned to crap. And yeah. worst piece of advice I'd ever been given because it was totally, you. Well, you know, I invited you to that keynote. It was the crappest bloody yeah. keynote I am so embarrassed about.
1: And I know I know we can go there. I mean you there was a few of us you had in the room that night for your new evolution of Stacy and the new keynote. and there were a few of us that you asked you know to be in the room specifically to give you feedback and I you were walking towards me and I was like, do I tell her the truth? Yeah. And you walked up to me and I said, Stacy, I, I would book the old one. I would never hire this one. And you were like you just looked at me and you kind of you kind of already knew and then you turned to the other two people who said exactly the same thing. And so, yeah, So, and that was more about trying to turn you into someone that you won't, which is something I really want everyone listening, like don't ever go, doesn't matter how good the advice is, if it takes you away from being who you are, then don't do it, you know. And that's one of the things that I think people need to understand is that constructive feedback is well and good so long as it comes from a place of love for the person that you're speaking to. What about the best piece of advice?
0: The best piece of advice is be yourself but be intentional about who you want to be.
1: Yeah.
0: I love that so much because when people do say to me, be yourself, that could mean creating a disaster, you know, because, (laughs) you know, I do swear a lot and I'm not proud of it. I don't want to be one of these ones. I've made the intention that I don't want to swear all the time. You know, I The old me could have sat here and had this conversation, and I'm not joking with you when I say I could be the Gary V female version. Like,
1: yeah, absolutely. Swear word
0: after swear word. I didn't know. I actually didn't know how to put a sentence together without swearing. Yeah. And so, if I had have got on stage, like everyone said, just be yourself. Just be yourself and swear. That's who you are. I didn't want to be that. And you know, I I, don't. I don't. I want to be proud of my kids. I don't want to be out there on YouTube videos and podcasts and stuff just swearing swearing the whole time like and so I have been intentional about who I want to be and so I've had to change my personality and it, you just do every next level of your life demands a different version and every year and it's not being fake it's it's just
1: no it's just evolution thinking
0: about what you it's yeah it's actually taking the time to think about who you want to become rather than living yeah you know, because I used to live in the moment without thinking and my consequences. I just lived. I didn't think. Yeah. Then I learned to think because yeah, without the stress, I could tap into the cortex thinking brain, you know? <laughs> so I started to think, oh, yeah. <laughs> who do I want to become? And every year I get better and better. Yeah. And so, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, I really like that because one of the things that I do love about you, we have a lot of conversations and one of the things I love is you actually brought that to my attention not long ago. It's like everyone's saying and the world is saying, just be you. And when you added that bit, no, be intentional about just be you. Like I love that because it actually, as you said, it makes you stop and think. Like am I being intentional about the person I want to become in this moment or am I just living in the moment and to hell with the consequences? And that really is the difference between the two, yeah?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like I could get on this podcast and swear like a trooper and be my total self, but would I be proud of that when we get off and finish? No, I wouldn't. Yeah. And so I have to be intentional about it. And it's not me being fake. I'm still this person. This is yeah, yeah. still being me.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm not, you know, I'll never be polished like my boss said to me one day, Stacy, by the time I'm finished with you, I'll be having you speaking with a plum in your mouth. Like I'll never speak with a plum, but I just, I don't want to be that sweary trucky. you know. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> so what's the best piece of advice you give to others?
0: The best piece of advice I give to others is uh, just dig deep and don't give up. Just don't, you know, it took me seven years of knockbacks to win my dream job. It took me nine years of knockbacks to win a publishing deal. It's taken me 10 years to create a bloody keynote presentation. Mate, just if you want it bad enough, dig deep, keep going and don't give up.
1: I love that. And on that note, because I could talk to you all the time, we do talk a lot, so I could keep talking to you for hours. On that note, I think that is what we absolutely need to remember. Just dig deep and keep going. Stacey Curry, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me and thank you guys for listening.
1: Thank you for joining me for this episode of Raise 1000 Voices. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if you have, then I would love you to subscribe to and rate the show on your favourite platform. Our show notes, resources and links to all our socials can be found at anygiventuesday.com.au forward slash podcast and if you'd like to join a growing community of clever creative and courageous women who know that they want to be seen heard and remembered then join us in our facebook group raise 1000 voices until we speak again take care and remember you were born to raise your voice